0: Welcome back, y'all. This is Episode 8 of Empathy And. I'm your host, Michael Scott Evans, and I am an empath. Now, I'm a lot of other things, too, mind you. I'm a former Baptist pastor and worship leader. I'm a culinary school dropout. I'm a voracious reader and lover of learning. I am an Enneagram 4 with a 5 wing, for all you Enneagram nerds out there. I'm an ENFP on the Myers-Briggs. I am a brother, I'm a son, I'm a father, I'm a dad. I carry all of these things with me. But lately, as is evidenced by the existence of this podcast, my identity as an empath has kind of come to the forefront. I'm a passionate and curious person that is currently obsessed with all things empathy. This obsession has led me to read and study psychology, neurobiology, anthropology, astronomy, theology. And in case it isn't already apparent, empathy affects everything. Back in episode 6, I told some of my story and experiences of how I came to understand that I was an empath, and how that informs how I think about the act of empathy. I slapped a part 1 at the end of that title because I just knew that there would be more to say on the subject. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that or any of the first few numbered episodes, I would encourage you to do so. It all kind of builds on each other, to be honest. In the first few episodes, I discussed the science of empathy, but I really didn't get into how I identify and operate as an empath. So here it goes. Welcome to Empathy and the Empath, Part 2. Empathy is a superpower, and you have it. It's the energy of human connection. It's a biological, neurological, psychological, sociological, and spiritual imperative, one that we're hardwired for. It's the key to deep and thriving relationships. Welcome to the conversation. This is Empathy And. There is a famous quote by Einstein that goes like this. Science without religion is lame. And religion without science is blind. Now, I'm not actually going to dive into the relationship between religion and science. I'm not up for that right now. (laughs) I'm not even going to debate Einstein's own doubts about the divine, which he did have. But it brings up this interesting and tenuous relationship between two particular ways of understanding the world. Is it science or is it religion? And a lot of people can't or won't, or perhaps even they choose not to resolve these two things. The main reason why I use this as a jumping off point is because I think a lot of people see the idea of the empath, as I've mentioned before, as set on the opposite end of a spectrum uh, with science inhabiting that other side. And I'm here to tell you that the that false dichotomy does not exist. Those two things do not have to be opposing forces. In many ways, I feel like it's part of what I'm supposed to do with this work. I'm supposed to be here to maybe help demystify the ability and the work of the empath, and to pull back the curtains on how we all have access to this superpower of empathy. Now, those two are not the same thing, necessarily. Empath and empathy. And I go into that in episode six. But, as a quick summary, I'll just say this. I think that we are all built with an instinctual ability to understand each other. And this happens across cultures, across races, across genders. And we're able to do this through affective empathy. That is the neurobiological center of our being. You might even call it our heart. We understand the base emotions of anger, disgust, fear, happiness, sadness, and surprise through common reactions and physical responses. But it's not something that we can purely pick up on just by keen observation. It takes an opening of oneself to a shared energetic experience. Now we further our understanding of each other by asking questions and imaginatively taking the perspective of each other. This is called cognitive empathy, of course. I've heard it called theory of mind in particular spaces too. So while affective empathy is very much gut instinct, right? Cognitive empathy takes work and it takes practice. When we act on the information gleaned from one or both of our empathic powers, we call that compassion. Compassion is empathy acted out. So, that's the basic understanding of how empathy works. Now, what about the empath? My understanding, my belief, my experience is that as an empath, the neurobiological function of affective empathy is heightened. We don't do empathy any better than anyone else, honestly. But I feel like we receive information through other people's energies in a different and heightened way. That's the intuitive nature of being an empath. We often do get more information than what someone who is merely using facial expressions and nonverbal body cues is able to get. But the key is, what do we do with that information? And that, my friends, is a whole different ballgame. So I'm going to take this episode to describe the characteristics that I see uh, as the hallmarks of the empath, and how I came to the realization that I was one. But first, I want to clear something up. If you were to use the Google to research empath, you would likely find that there are different types of empath. And depending on where you look, you might find three or five or ten different kinds Of empaths listed. I won't get into each of the different kinds of empaths in this particular episode, but that might be a good subject for a later one. But in this episode, I want to be clear and say that fundamentally, I am talking about the life and the experience and the work of the emotional empath. It has been my experience that you can be more than one, but I'm going to concentrate this episode. On the emotional empath. So, how do you know that you are an empath? Again, there's probably a larger list that I could provide, but I will simply distill it down to uh, three different categories. The first is how you interact with your environment. The second, how you interact with others, which of course is the biggest portion of it. And then, third, how you interact with yourself. Now, don't get me wrong, and This is not gospel. These are not hard and fast rules. But again, it's purely my perspective on the life of the empath. So first, we're going to discuss our relationship to the environment or to nature. And I'm going to lead with the positive side of it. If you have a general preference to be outside and in nature and it soothes you, you enjoy with your bare feet on the grass, you like being uh near the ocean, you like being in the forest, being around trees gives you uh, life gives you energy. That might be your empathic side kind of uh giving showing you their their true colors. And the reason why that sounds really vague and and that might apply to a lot of people is when you consider the alternative of that. If you find that being in crowded spaces with loud noises, lots of people, a lot going on, being overly stimulated, if you find that that gives, stresses you out to the point of anxiety, that is your sensitivity kicking in. And I know in a previous episode, I've talked that being a highly sensitive person isn't necessarily an indicator that you are an empath, but most empaths are highly sensitive. And this is something that I've dealt with uh, in the past. As a musician, it's actually been an interesting paradox of sorts. I have sung in front of hundreds, and maybe in a couple instances, thousands of people at a time, either as part of the group or as a solo. And what I found is that as a performer, I was able to use the positive energy that you typically get from an audience and turn that into my own positive energy. It was not an anxiety. I can really only give credit to the people in my life that have encouraged me towards uh, the expression through arts, through music, and through theater. It was a learned behavior on my part to not perceive that as anxiety, but to use that as energy to work off of. But for all the excitement that being in front of an audience brings, I know that I truly am rejuvenated when I'm either by myself or with just a few people, and that's pretty common with the empath. And if we are outside, of course, that's just the cherry on top. Growing up, my two favorite places to be, and we were there almost every summer, alternating summers, was um, the beach house, my grandparents' beach house in Capistrano, and my other grandparents in the country, in East Tennessee. Being outside provides a soothing energy that almost nothing else can provide. And that flows pretty well to the second point that I want to bring up. How you interact with others now of course this is this is the connection part this is the this is the basic reason why uh, we would identify as empaths and again, if you get online and you're looking at all these listicles that you can find that uh most people who identify as empaths can be classified as introverts, and that's just uh, that may be somewhat true, but I don't think that's a a hard and fast rule either. That flows pretty well to the second point, how you interact with others. A lot of those listicles that you can find online will say that most people who identify as empaths are introverts. And that may very well be true, but again, it's not really a hard and fast rule. Because we more easily absorb others' feelings and emotions, we will often need to pull back from crowds of people or even smaller gatherings, if the emotions are high especially. That doesn't necessarily mean that we are strictly introverted people, though. Have you ever walked into a room and there was just this energy about it? The people in that room are expecting something good or maybe bad or uncertain, and when you enter, you can physically feel a change in your body that reflects the energy of the people present. In my different careers, both as a project manager for a computer company and in my past life as a pastor, it was my job to be in front of people. It was my job to to create that energy, most of it positive, thankfully, because I'm a generally positive person. And I think I was able to learn early on that the way I interacted with others, even if I was dealing with confusing or harmful emotions, was purely contingent on how I framed it for me. Like I said, I'm a generally positive person, and that's never been very hard, but I know that's not the same for everyone. The last thing I'll say about this part is, in how we interact with others, is that it is not science fiction or fantasy to think that you have the ability to energetically influence others' attitudes, feelings, and emotions. In fact, there is a very popular psychological term called the polyvagal theory that seems to support the idea that our bodies are actually meant to receive and send information in ways that are not exclusive just to speech, just to talking to each other. And the polyvagal theory is definitely something that we will come back to in a further episode. But finally, how you interact with yourself. Do you find that you are more inclined to dwell on your own feelings and emotions, and that you more often than not just can't get over it like people ask you to? maybe you've been called sensitive by others and it's not untrue it's hard to hear sometimes but it's not false you might cry at odd times for no apparent reason you could be in line at target you could be on a run in the park and you will be overwhelmed with emotion if you've ever been confused at an emotion or feeling that you were having unsure of where it came from and why it seemed to pop up sometimes just being around others is actually the simplest and truest answer. In some of my earlier episodes, I unpacked the idea of impermanence and detachment. So I want to take a little tangent here and and talk about this. I learned this from Buddhism, but it's not strictly Buddhism. There's some psychological uh, studies to support this as well. But coming to grips with my own emotions and feelings, and truly understanding the transient nature of my thoughts, has helped me understand myself better, and therefore it helps me to engage with others more honestly. I find myself defending the idea of detachment for some reason a lot lately, because way too often I see folks disregarding it as aloofness or uncaring, but it has been revolutionary to me for me to come to grips with myself and others as a whole living caring, and honestly confused human being in the here and now that we just want our stories heard. If we can accept ourselves as unique versions of ourselves that need love and attention now, tomorrow, we'll do it again with the people we are tomorrow. And that sounds a little heady, maybe a little bit esoteric, but Those two points of how we interact with others and ourselves is absolutely key to not only understanding a better way to be human, but it is absolutely invaluable to me as an empath. That helps me figure out where I end and somebody else begins. Being an empath, being able to feel others' emotions and intuitively guiding them in conversation to help them understand themselves and their situations, this is what I was born to do. I am convinced of it. And in order to do that in a healthy way, I have to have good boundaries, both internally and externally. So I think it's probably a good thing, an appropriate thing to talk about emotional intelligence here. Because someone who is prone to empathy offers a lot of energy and information about the people around me, right? But what I do with that information is really a question of character. Emotional intelligence, if you have not heard that term, is the ability to perceive, control, and evaluate emotions. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? There are some researchers that suggest that emotional intelligence can be learned and strengthened, while others claim it's an inborn characteristic. (laughs) Again, sounds familiar, right? And honestly, y'all, I think it's both. In 1990, psychologists Peter Salovey and John Mayer, no, not that John Mayer, published a landmark article entitled Emotional Intelligence. It was in the Journal of Imagination, Cognition, and Personality. In it, they describe four components of emotional intelligence that have, unsurprisingly, served me well as a basis for how to deal with my empathic tendencies. I have a general rule when talking about emotions and dealing with my own that follow a very simple three-step process. It conveniently spells out OR, as in how do we navigate through the waters of empathy? Well, with your OR, of course. (laughs) O-A-R. These three steps coincide with Salovey and Mayer's four different levels. The O in OR stands for observe. Observe your emotions and feelings. Notice how they affect you physically. Try to be objective in your assessment. This takes practice, for sure. This corresponds with the first level of emotional intelligence, which is to perceive emotions. It's to understand your own through introspection and engage others through nonverbal signals and affective empathy. The A in OR stands for acknowledge. Recognize your feelings for what they are. Understand that once an emotion is elevated to a feeling, it packs an extra punch, doesn't it? Because of all the meaning that is ascribed to it through our memory, our reaction, our history with that particular situation or emotion. And steps two and three of emotional intelligence sum up what I mean here. Step two is reasoning with emotions, while step three is understanding emotions. We apply our cognitive empathy in order to understand what has triggered a particular reaction. And once we understand, we can appropriately point that energy towards a specific end, right? Rather than just letting it run rampant and give anxiety to everyone present. And I'm convinced that that's the hard work of the empath, or of anyone engaged in the act of empathy. Finally, the R in OR stands for respond and maybe even release. If we've been as objective as possible in our observation and our acknowledgement of our own emotions and of those around us, it is time to respond. That response can coincide with the work of compassion. Compassion in this context can just mean that we've been able to address it in a way that honors it and gives it the space that's required. Depending on the situation, it can also mean that we help in some certain way, alleviating feelings or emotions but that's not always possible, especially when others are involved. Now, I cannot emphasize this enough. Compassion is not just something you do for someone else. It must be something that you practice on yourself often and with great affection. I hear it said very often, uh, would you ever talk to your closest friend or loved one the way you talk to yourself? And unfortunately, we are pretty horrible to ourselves sometimes, aren't we? The answer is, we must have grace and compassion for ourselves and to release our own hard feelings in order to truly understand how to do that for someone else. Level four of Emotional Intelligence as Divine by Salovey and Mayer is managing. And that pretty much fits with what uh, I am offering with Responding and Releasing. So, if talking about the act of empathy and emotional intelligence makes it easier to understand the work of the empath, then so be it. Maybe it does demystify it a little bit. The esoteric nature of the empath is much more than what I describe here, of course. There are plenty of other mysteries that I cannot explain. I am constantly in awe of how being open to someone else's story and energy has been fruitful for my own journey. I have met people seemingly at random that, due to our shared interest in all things empath and empathy and energy, have brought opportunities and relationships that I cherish to this very day. So that's why I do this. I do this to maybe blur the line between the work of the empath and the act of empathy. To offer the invitation to everyone that they have a superpower lying dormant that can be the key to making the world a better place. A place where everyone can live, love, and thrive. A place where our connection drives us forward towards a better tomorrow. Peace, y'all.